So we uh, had been going through the book of Genesis, which we're, we're going to finish the book of Genesis in the fall, Lord willing, um, picking it back up in September. But we're taking a few weeks to do some short series. So over the last two weeks, we looked at Ecclesiastes in two weeks. And for the next three weeks, I think, um, we're going to do a series on the glory of Christ from the Gospel of John. Okay, so I want to just take a little bit of an extended introduction time here to say why would we do a series on the glory of Christ? Um, maybe you're like, well, of course, that's great. But anyway, I think it'll be helpful for all of us to just consider why this is so important and why we want to focus here for the next few weeks. So what's the purpose? What might God intend to do through a series focused on the glory of Christ? How would you answer that question? Like, what might you be expecting or anticipating, longing for? So I'll give one answer from the book of John, since we're going to be looking at the book of John, and then one answer from elsewhere in the New Testament before we dive into John chapter 1 this morning, okay? So the first answer comes from John chapter 2, and that's actually our passage next week. Um, so we're going to look at the glory in the flesh. That's this morning. Next week, the glory in the wine. That's the following week, and the glory in the blood. Okay, so that's our three-week series. So um, we'll look at chapter 2 next week, but look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is after Jesus turns the water into wine. The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. They trusted in him. So manifestation of glory and trust follows that manifestation. Hmm. Sounds like that fits right in with the purpose of the book of John. So if you're familiar with the book of John, the gospel according to John, he doesn't leave us to kind of figure out why he wrote this gospel account. He states it explicitly near the end of the book. So chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these ones, the ones that John recorded, are written. Why? So that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So signs signify something. Okay? They point to and they draw your attention to something. So Jesus did lots of signs that weren't recorded in the Gospel of John. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these ones down. Why? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and not just so that we would know facts in our heads about Jesus, but that we would trust him with our hearts so that by believing we would have life in his name. So this is both new life in the Gospel of John. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need new spiritual life. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We need God to raise us just like Jesus rose um, Lazarus from the dead. This is also abundant life. 
Remember in John 10.10, Jesus is talking about how he's the, the good shepherd, and he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is our good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep to save them, to save us, and to ensure that with him as our shepherd, we shall not want. We will have life abundant. Okay? He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He restores our souls. He came that we would have life and have it abundantly. So glory, faith, life. We need to see glory so that we can trust in him so that we can really live. So that's one of the purposes. That's one answer to why this series is important. We need to see the glory of Christ so we trust in him. If our eyes are not on Jesus, folks, if they're not filled with his glory, then we're going to be sitting ducks for all kinds of deceitful promises all around us. I mean, why do we wander away? Because something else looks better. The grass, you know, looks greener. We go for fool's gold when we stop seeing the surpassing value of knowing Christ, which leads us to the second place where we see a reason why this is so important. It's found in Philippians 3. So I said I'd show you one in John and one outside of John. The other one is in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8. So in that context, Paul has just gotten done saying that if anyone could put their trust, their confidence in their own pedigree and their own performance, it was him. Okay? He had a very impressive spiritual resume. But obviously he was persecuting Christians. He thought Jesus was an imposter. But then Jesus, the real Messiah, stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road, blinded him so that he could see. And he saw the glory of Christ for the first time when he was blind. You know how he described that transformation? Philippians 3, 7 and 8. You can follow along up here. So, but whatever gain I had, you know, to put my confidence in my spiritual resume, I counted it as loss. Not just neutral, it was loss. It's going to get in the way for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because I've, I've got a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. But don't feel bad for me. No self-pity here. I count them all as rubbish because I want to gain Christ. So how in the world does this happen? How do you look at everything that was everything to you? Gain his resume and call it loss only when you see the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord and you want him as your greatest gain, as the treasure of your life. It's like the parable of the, the treasure hidden in the field, right? So that guy had to sell everything that he had to buy that field. I mean, that's really hard. How could you give up everything? Well, what if the treasure's got this infinite value? He, in his joy, he went and sold everything because he saw the value of the field. So it was not hard to sell everything. He's like skipping all the way to the pawn shop. So do you see how 
seeing and being captivated by the glory of Christ is actually the key to saying no to deceitful promises of sin, the enslaving power of sin, and for us to be satisfied in God through Christ. So, like, on a real simple level, how do you get a dog to let go of a bone? You can, oh, come on, good, 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 take it. Or you can offer him one that's juicier, that's got a bunch of meat on it. So, how do we turn away from these things that so easily capture our attention and draw us away? Well, the surpassing value and glory and gain of knowing Christ. And then we just go, what am I doing chasing after this? Yes. So let's look to Christ these next three weeks and everywhere in between and afterwards and, okay, to seek to see and know the surpassing value of knowing Christ so that all the competition for our heart's affection just falls away and we would be satisfied in him. So uh, Cornelius Plantinga, uh, I think he used to be, I don't know if he still is, was the president of Hope College, um, this scholar too, Bible scholar too. Um, He wrote a chapter called Deep Wisdom, and I'm going to quote from him a few times this morning. So here's the first quote, because we're talking about glory, and we're talking about the glory in the flesh in John 1. So I think you can follow along there. How hard it is to see real glory, and this like overly long introduction is done, okay? So we're going to dive into John 1 here in just a second. How hard it is to to see real glory. How hard to see real glory when we think glory is all about making a splash. We miss the real thing because we borrow our standards from people who have mixed glory up with publicity. People like pro athletes and entertainers, hard-charging, hard-charging winners in politics and business, occupants of name chairs in departments of literature. If he had written this more recently, maybe he would add influencers and you know a few other more recent examples. In ordinary life, glory is reputation. It is reputation built on competition and publicity and peer review by people just as screwed up as we are. Well, in the Gospel of John, we see real glory. So let's keep our eyes peeled for it and and dive in. So in chapter 1 of John's gospel, verses 1 to 18 is like the introduction to the gospel. Sometimes it's called the prologue, okay? We're going to look mainly at verses 14 to 18, but we'll begin in verses 1 to 2. So there's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful, to follow along that way. The points will be on the screen as well. So point number one, the Word became flesh. Um, Let's look at verse 1 to start. So in the beginning... Does that sound familiar? Echoes of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So here's the thing. Most of us, we're familiar with this, and that's part of the problem, is we're too familiar with this. This is crazy stuff. Like, just try hearing this as if it was for the first time. 
What is the Word? So the Word is with God. Okay. He spoke in the beginning. I get that. So the Word is with God, distinct from God, but connected to God. But then it's the Word was God. Wait a second. With and was? And then it's not just an it. It's personal. He was in the beginning with God. Like, what is going on here? This is wild stuff. This is written by a fiercely monotheistic Jew. John was a, all the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They would have recited the Shema every day of their life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how can there be with God, was God? But it gets crazier. Look down to verse 14, and the identity of the Word begins to come into focus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so again, we are way too familiar with this. This should shock us. The Word became flesh flesh. So John intentionally uses shocking, blunt, unrefined language here. He doesn't say, the eternal Son of God assumed an earthly body. He says the Word became flesh. So listen, do not say, don't let yourself say, oh yeah, so this is the incarnation. Like, can you just move on to application here? Listen, we get bamboozled all the time thinking we understand things because we put a label on it. As if astrophysicists understand anything about black holes because they have a label called an event horizon. What's an event horizon? Well, you can look it up. So it's a boundary beyond which events cannot affect an observer on the opposite side of it. So an event horizon is most commonly associated with black holes where gravitational forces are so strong that light cannot escape. In other words, we have no idea what kind of crazy magic happens inside of a black hole. Actually, most scientists will tell you they don't know much about black holes, okay? But what is a black hole? Oh, that's a black hole. I have a label. Now I know what that is. You don't know what a, no, nobody knows what a black hole is. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a label. We think we know something about it. You know, kind of like, kind of like a four-year-old that knows what the internet is because they've heard their parents talk about the internet. Okay, four-year-old, why don't you tell your peer what the internet is? <laughs> like, listen to that conversation. Well, that's us with, like, everything. Do you know what water is? Well, it's, you know, Water is a chemical substance, formula H2O, one molecule of water is two hydrogen atoms covalently bonded, you know, to a single atom. Like, water is crazy magical stuff. If you, if you studied the chemical composition in a lab under a microscope, like, forever, yeah, you'll know a little bit about water, but go jump in it and splash around and freeze it and boil it and look at a flood and look at 
clouds and rain and like this is crazy, crazy. Don't just, don't just like, oh, a label. Now I know what this is. Are you kidding? We don't have a clue. So incarnation, so easy to say and just move on. Wait, what just happened? <laughs> what, wait, what just happened? God became a man? Are you with me here? Like, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not bashing science or anything like that, talking about water or labels. Like, labels are helpful, shorthand, you know, for us to have the conversation. What I'm saying is, labels are just the beginning. There's so much to the reality of things. And just saying incarnation doesn't get us anywhere. Like, ponder what happened, and you're going to spend the rest of your life and eternity being blown away. How does that happen? How does infinity take on a finite human body? How, do, how is that possible? So little just kind of, it's so easy to not be blown away and not be in awe of God. The Word became flesh. So hottest stars we know about are blue hypergiants, whatever. Uh, there you go. It's another label. Hey, I know what. The hottest stars are there, the blue hypergiants. We can move on to the next topic. Like, what's a blue hypergiant? What? It's, it's really big giant star because <laughs> it's hyper. <laughs> like, you see what I'm saying? It's just a label, okay? So I don't know how they measure these things, but like our star is pretty modest, and it's like 10,000 degrees surface temper temperature, okay? The core temperature of the sun can reach 25 million degrees. How do they measure that? I have no idea. Um, but that's pretty cool that they know that. The surface temperature of a blue hypergiant, at least one that they've observed 7,500 light years away, is 72,000 degrees. So 10,000, 72,000. So what's the core temperature of a blue hypergiant? I don't know. I don't even know if they know. But the incarnation is like shrinking down a blue hypergiant into a glow stick. Like, what, what would you be like? Ah, it doesn't, like, I hope it doesn't break out, like blow up, oh, like crack open. We're all toast. The Word became flesh. The, the Word became flesh. God, God took on flesh. We will never fully comprehend the incarnation. So we should ponder and wonder and worship The eternal took on finitude. So it's so easy. Like, we're wired for awe, aren't we? It's why there's like gazillions of, you know, views on so many cool YouTube videos. But the real glory is not necessarily there, even though it can come through some of those means. Here's the real glory. But we yawn and move on. So we need to stop and we need to say, oh, God, I can be bored with you and just obsessed and enamored with all kinds of things that you've made. Like, open my eyes. Help me see your glory. Show me your glory. Which is, again, why we're doing this series. Okay? So when you read the Gospel of John, 
Be on the lookout for the glory of Jesus because it's all over the place. Notice how many times the word glory, glorified, shows up. In fact, these short series are intended not just to, you know, feed us on a Sunday morning, which they are, but also to kind of whet our appetites and encourage further study, whether it's Ecclesiastes or the book of John. So, word became flesh, point number two, and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is actually a whole massive foundation under this one stone dwelt. Like imagine, you know, walking up and seeing like the top of a, a stone, and underneath it is this massive foundation. So dwelt is a key word intending us to think about a whole complex of important things from the Old Testament. Okay, so let me say it this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled. Maybe you've heard somebody say that before. Tabernacled among us. Okay? So the tabernacle, what was that? In the Old Testament was the place where God's presence was represented, focused with his people. The tent, right? And then later, the temple was that place with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and all of that. Obviously, because of sin, sacrifice was required so that atonement could be made, so that God could dwell with his people without destroying them. But still, that holy place could only be entered by one person, the high priest, and that only once a year so that atonement could be made for the people so that God could dwell with his people. So our sin, our unholiness had to be dealt with if we're going to be able to dwell with God and God's going to be able to dwell with us. And obviously, you know, the priests had their own sin and it's over and over and over again and ultimately the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. So God came to dwell with us. Jesus came dwelling among us and he said, next chapter of John, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They thought he meant the, you know, temple structure. He's talking about his body because Jesus is the place where God meets with man. So his body was torn so that we could have peace with God and enter into his presence with confidence as his beloved, forgiven, cleansed, made righteous sons and daughters. So he came and dwelt with us so that we could dwell with him third point. We've seen his glory. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Really, you know, um, creative outline here. You, you see it? Um, <laughs> did, you, did you catch that? You just notice the outline? It's basically just like the words from um, 114. Okay. Anyway, I know it's a little warm in here. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, again, the tabernacle is in mind here. Do you remember what happened when the tabernacle was complete? Anybody remember? The glory came down. Okay, so Exodus 40, verses, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's not surprising that when God dwelt with us, with his people, 
they saw his glory. So Jesus comes, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. So what do we see? We see glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have this expression, obviously, in English, like Father, like Son. Well, this is perfectly true of this Father and Son. So Jesus actually made all kinds of statements to this effect in John. Just look at two of them here. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does also, or likewise. And then John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So, we see the glory of God, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The Son shows, reveals, displays the glory of the Father. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the visible image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. So then in John 14, Jesus said to Philip at verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Which is why, at the end of our section, John 1.18, the end of the prologue, it ends like this. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, in the bosom of the Father, connoting intimacy. He has explained him. He's made him known. So to see the glory of the Son is to see the glory of the Father. The Word is the ultimate self-revelation, self-disclosure of the Father. If we want to know God, we look at Jesus. So don't let anybody say, like we hear this in pop culture and in, even in the news when Christians are represented, it's like God is angry and, and kind of mean in the Old Testament and he's nice and forgiving in the New Testament. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is wrath in the New Testament, and there is mercy in the Old Testament. Tons of mercy. So to see Jesus is to see the Father. He reveals the glory of God fully and ultimately. So what's again the nature of this glory? It's full of grace and truth. You see that phrase in 114 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here, if, again, I know you've got to kind of track along here, but here's where that Exodus background ties in. Caroline read Exodus 33, 34. So Moses pleaded with God, show me your glory. And what did God say? He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name. So God's glory is contained in his goodness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Look again at Exodus 34.5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, the self-existent one. I am who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 33 and 34 is like paradigm shaping for the rest of the Old Testament. Over and over again, you read about God's steadfast love and faithfulness because he's revealed himself here in this, you know, amazing way. And constantly the writers are referring back here because this is such an important revelation of the character, the name, the glory of God. So this Exodus glory is actually a setup. It's a signpost. It's pointing to the main event of God's glory in the incarnation, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Moses said, show me your glory. Okay, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you and I'm going to proclaim my name. If you want to see my glory, I'm going to give you words and tell you what I'm like. And the ultimate revelation of the glory of God is the Word made flesh. And we see and hear the glory through the person and work of Christ. So God dwelt among us, Emmanuel. We see his glory. It's full of grace and truth. That's actually John's way of referring to steadfast love and faithfulness. So the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is the Old Testament equivalent of full of grace and truth. So he's pointing back and saying, this is God showing up and showing himself, revealing himself. And when we see his glory, it is full of grace and truth. It's full, abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. So if the Son of God takes on flesh and dwells with us, what should we expect to see? Not Thor, you know, God of thunder, eyes lighting up and lightning bolts and impressive, like, we see glory that's actually unexpected. We see goodness. We see patience. We see unexpected glory full of grace and truth. Point number four. So as we go through the book of John, this is one of the things we need to be calibrated for is the glory shows up in unexpected places. Not in pomp and circumstance, but through humility and service. There's glory in the towel and the basin and God in the flesh on his knees wiping dirty feet. That is glorious. Of course, though, of course he would take up the basin and the towel and serve his disciples like a lowly slave, even though that's crazy and wild and wonderful, because what did he come to do? He came to die a shameful death on a cross for those same disciples and for you and me to serve us, to set us free from our slavery to sin. Of course. It's like Philippians 2. See the glory here, the same glory that we see in John. Though he was in the form of God, equal with God. He did not e count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, held onto for his own advantage. 
He let go. He emptied himself, coming down. Incarnation, word became flesh by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. The sovereign one became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This glorious, like the most glorious being in the universe, dying the most shameful, humiliating death. That is glory. The shame that he embraced and despised for us is revealing the glory and the goodness of God, full of grace and truth. Of course this is his glory. His greatness actually is his goodness. (laughs) So do you see how his greatness makes the goodness that much better? (laughs) The greater you are, if you do generous acts of service, the more amazing, the gooder those acts are. This is the highest one doing the lowest thing. So the greatness of his greatness makes the goodness of his goodness that much more amazing. Of course, right? It's like Mark 10. Jesus called his disciples and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, the world has its definitions of glory and its definitions of greatness. We have to just leave those all behind and learn glory and greatness from Jesus. But it shall not be so among you. If you're going to follow me, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Because even the Son of Man, the King of kings, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's glory. So Cornelius Plantinga, again, he writes this, Jesus pours himself out for his disciples while his own life hangs by a thread. And in this, sisters and brothers, in this we behold his glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the fullness of grace, grace upon grace, always out to bless, always out to adorn, to unite, cause others to flourish, always thinking of others, doing whatever it takes, paying whatever it costs, the Son of God going flat out in grace and truth so that others may live and do so abundantly. It's like Jesus was saving the thief on the cross while he is suffering for that thief. So if you read the accounts, you see that both of the thieves were railing at him to start. And at some point, one of them turns and repents and trusts in Jesus. So Jesus is literally saving while he's suffering. Crazy, full of grace and truth. That is the glory of God. That's who God is. That's our God. That's his glory. It's who he is. He's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. So we close with one final point here. Beholding, believing, and becoming. What what do I mean by that? Well, in a sense, we, we kind of end where we began. With another reason for the importance of focusing on the glory of Christ. So you don't have to turn there because this will will go quick. But 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul wrote this. He says, In their case, meaning those who were perishing, 
the God of this world, that's a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan does not want people to see the glory of Christ. He will blind and distract and distort and divert all he can. And so Paul, he knows this actually by firsthand experience because he used to think that Jesus was an imposter and he persecuted anybody that followed him. But then he got blinded by Jesus so that he began to see the glory of Christ. And what did he do? He laid his life down and proclaimed Christ, following Jesus on the Calvary Road. So Paul counters that diabolical strategy to blind people from what they most need by the foolishness of the cross, by preaching Christ and him crucified. So the gospel of Jesus is powerful. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, the very next, very next verse. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. <laughs> you don't need me. You don't need more of me. You don't need to see how wonderful I am. No, you need to know Jesus. You need to see how wonderful he is. So we proclaim him, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves. We're just servants for Jesus' sake. Why? Because God who said, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you are blind to the glory of Christ and you go after everything else as your gain and your treasure, if you become a Christian, it's like God saying, let there be light. Just like he spoke and the world was created, he speaks into this disordered, chaotic, dark heart. And all of a sudden, you come alive and awake and you go, wait a second, this is all loss. Christ is gain. Yes. Thank you for saving me, giving me yourself. So seeing the glory of Christ and the surpassing value of knowing him, that's what we need more than anything else. And so by the word of Christ, by the revelation of God, that's actually how eyes get open. People become new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. It can happen for you this morning if you're coming awake like you just used to be bored with church and bored with Jesus. And yeah, you know, I know all the answers, but, but you're like, wait a second, no. He is the treasure. Maybe God's turning the lights on. So hearing and seeing by faith, by the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, the glory of Christ is how we're made new, but it's also how we're renewed day by day, how we grow to be more like Jesus. So that's why I say beholding, believing, becoming, because there's another verse from 2 Corinthians, the same context that we need to see. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, and the Lord refers to Jesus in this context, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, baby steps, a little bit at a time. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
The Spirit needs to open our eyes so that we see not just words on the page, but the glory of God revealed on the page. So listen, folks, we all are wired this way. We become like what we worship. We become like what we admire. You know, simple example is, you know, a little boy with his, you know, hero sports, you know, figure. He's going to He's going to stand the way that guy does or shoot the way, you know, Steph Curry does or whatever, or singing like your hero or whatever. We become like what we worship, like what we admire. So beholding is the key to becoming. As we see the glory of Christ, we trust in him. We treasure him. And we are changed by him into his image from one degree of glory to the next. This only happens by the work of the Spirit. We can't just flip the lights on and make this happen. So that's why we look and we plead. That's why you read your Bible in the morning, right? I need to see Jesus and Spirit of God. Would you please make it real and just drive it in here so that I'm changed by you more and more into his image. I I want to follow Jesus and I want to become more like Jesus. So help me see Jesus. So we look and we plead, we ponder and we pray. Don't you want to know God, Bethel? Like we want to know God. So we need to look at Jesus because Jesus reveals God. He shows us what our God is like. So let's get obsessed with Jesus here. Let's fix our eyes on him. His incarnation, his life, his teaching, his works, and ultimately his death, and resurrection. There is no clearer display of the glory of God than that bloody, radiant glory on the cross. It's most clearly and most ultimately where we see God's greatness revealed in his goodness. So one more from Plantinga, and then we'll transition to the table here. If the men who are serving want to make their way forward, He says, Jesus on his knees before his disciples is just doing what he sees his father doing. I think I left a word out. (laughs) And of course, the gospel finds glory here because it is so much like God to clean people up and cause them to flourish. Of course, Jesus is washing feet because his father cleanses people. Read the Psalms. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. And bread for a traitor? Well, doesn't God do this all the time, sending rain on the fields of the just and the unjust so that their crops will grow and they will grow, and they will grow too as they feed on God's gifts? Jesus hands Judas a piece of bread because he just does what he sees his father doing, and the gospel finds glory here because it's so much like God to feed enemies and cause them to flourish. So, In fact, we come to this table and we feed at this table because he loved us while we were still his enemies and he made us his friends. So if you've been reconciled to God by his full of grace and truth mercy, then let's celebrate that grace and truth this morning and feed on the grace that's ours in Christ and be strengthened. So let's, folks, turn our gaze away from lesser things, imitation glory, and let's fix our eyes on him and worship 
Let's stop running everywhere for satisfaction and come to Jesus this morning to be satisfied. Let's feed on his grace and truth and be strengthened and satisfied. And as we do, we will be changed. We're going to be strengthened. We're going to be enabled to love as he first loved us, to give as he's given freely to us, and to serve as he's humbly served us. So I'm going to pray and give thanks here in just a moment. If there's any of you here with us this morning that are not sure you know, where you're at with Jesus and you're not trusting him as your Savior, we're really glad that you're here. We'd love to you know, answer any questions you have, serve you in any way that we can. But when the elements pass by, just let them pass by. There's no shame in that. Um, and so let's just make sure everybody is served, both the bread and the cup. You take them both and hold them until everyone's served, and then we'll participate together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a speaking, revealing God. You want us to know you. And even though in our sin, even though you are the greatest glory in the universe and the only thing that can satisfy us, we run the other way and worship and serve created things rather than you. So thank you for coming after us in your mercy, your abundant steadfast love and faithfulness and rescuing us by sending Jesus. Thank you that we can feed on your grace here this morning and be strengthened. We want to become more like Jesus and shine with his light and love and truth and patience and mercy and compassion and kindness to those around us. And we need grace to do it. So strengthen us now as we participate in the table that you have set for us by your grace. We ask it all in Jesus' name.